Welcome, everyone, to Election Connection. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, and... This broadcast today is very special because for the next hour or so, you will be privy to what it was like to live in a cult group in California in the late 60s to early 70s. I have with me today, virtually that is, my brother, Sam Newman. He's a therapist out in San Diego, California. But during the 60s, both he and I lived in a cult. I lived there for two years, and he lived there for three. I in Santa Monica in San Diego, California, and he in Oakland, California. The name of the cult was Synanon. Maybe some of you have heard of it. At its peak, Synanon facilities could be found all across the U.S. and in parts of Europe. Somewhere around 15 to 20,000 people lived in a Synanon facility at one time or another. This is really the first time that my brother and I have broached this subject at any length. So I invite you to journey with us as we delve into what my brother Sam refers to as Synanon in rectal spect. <laughs> so here is my brother Sam. Welcome to Election Connection. Hi, Ruth. And I also yeah. remember hearing you refer to it as sing-along. <laughs> oh, yeah. We would jokingly uh, use that term, sing-along, <laughs> and, and, and hope that nobody heard it. Now, I want to kind of start off with just putting it in context, talking about the times that we were living in, because I think that there's a lot of parallels with the times that we're living in now. And you might even make a connection with the cult of Trump, <laughs> but... Aside from that, it was a time of great flux. We had the Vietnam War, the yeah. draft, the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. women's movement. Kennedy was assassinated. A lot going on in the environment. Well, we had two Kennedys yes. and uh, Martin Luther King. Lots of turmoil going on in those days. And we have nowadays, we have climate change. We have the pandemic. We have Black Lives Matter. So yeah. uh, there's just a lot going on right now as well, and a lot of instability and insecurity. That was kind of the context then. And so let's talk about how we define a cult. How do you okay. define a cult? So the way I would define a cult is that it is um, kind of the reverse of any other society or nation in that nations and societies define their intent to uh, represent the people and the elected officials. Of course, this isn't true in dictatorships and totalitarian uh, regimes, but the leaders are supposedly out to represent the well-being of their citizenry. And a cult kind of uh, gathers by the opposite principle that they assign omnipotence almost to like a religious point. They assign this omnipotence to their leader, often very charismatic kind of leader, and they are out to serve the leader. It's almost the opposite kind of flow going on there. There's a uniformity, a conformity, and a congruity of appearance and belief that the members have to have. There's usually some kind of guy, usually a guy, at the top, it's been described as a kind of a pyramid structure, right. and that person is usually very charismatic mm -hmm. and also gives these grand illusions of, you know, utopian bliss or that they will fix everything, that they are the one, the knight in shining armor that is going to save everybody. And certainly Synanon had that characteristic with, with our leader, Chuck Dieterich. You mentioned usually men are uh -huh. the leaders, and I can't think of one cult, you know, at least in modern times, that had a female leader. I'm thinking that people who are vulnerable to cults, in my observation as a marriage and family therapist, uh, are people who have had either very disruptive fathers or absent fathers. In both cases, they, they have sort of a deficit in their life for fathering. And so they're very attracted to someone who presents themselves as an omnipotent, benevolent father figure. 
And as a matter of fact, I can give a quote here from Chuck where he says, character disorders quite simply are people who had too strong a dose of mother love and were never properly housebroken by fathers. We are a father principle phenomenon which rewards good behavior and punishes bad behavior. That was his notion of what a father did, rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, think of cult groups as only religious, but Synanon was not religious, right? Although you could make the argument that Chuck became kind of a, a demagogue or, you know, kind of a religious figure. Yeah, well, you had to give your total loyalty to Chuck, absolutely. But I remember there being statues of him, at least in the Santa Monica facility where I lived. And I very rarely ever saw him. (laughs) He always had an entourage around him wherever he went. It's like almost an addiction, you know, being in a a cult. I Um, certainly felt that when I left Synanon and felt this wonderful weight off of my shoulders. Can I just go back to something you said about fathering? like to think of himself as a, as fathering and you know the the notion of fatherhood that we learn in graduate school when we're studying the dynamics of family is that the father is the person who is actually training the children to go from the small family system into the larger community around them you know into the general society so it's, a, it's like a fatherly responsibility to get children ready for that through proper discipline. But, you know, in a cult, that never happens because they don't want to lose their members. So a father is typically responsible for launching children into the world. And Chuck never did that. No one could launch. As a matter of fact, it was universally held in Synanon that if you left, you died. You would die. When I left Synanon... I I was at my parents' house, our parents' house, and I couldn't get out of bed for two months. I was so depressed and feelings of like there was no life left. Yeah. You know, and fear that what they had drummed into my head for those two years would really be true, that I would die. And the more I think about that, you know, uh, people being held in obeyance through this uh, stark fear is I think that, that that actually applies to why people are so loyal to Donald Trump, you know, because you, you have to ask yourself, why aren't more people trying to get out of there? Why aren't more of the Republican Party in the Senate, you know, trying to, you know, openly defy him? Because they mm-hmm. certainly probably feel that. I think they're just terrified of him. He's, he's uh-huh. created uh, some kind of fear around him. Yeah, I bet you're right about that. Holding his own little political community in obeyance the way Chuck held residents of Synanon in obeyance. Yes. And I have a quote from Omarosa, the woman who was in his cabinet for a while, I think. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called Unhinged. And at the end of her book, her quote is, I've escaped from the cult of Trump world. I'm free. (laughs) You want to kind of talk about how Synanon got started? So... Uh, I think it's probably a value to also talk about how Chuck got started. Chuck, he was Synanon, yes. Yeah, he was Synanon. It was a cult of personality. It was him. So he was born in Ohio in 1913. And uh, his father died of alcoholism when he was four years old. And he was pretty much reared by his mother, who was a concert pianist. He had a little brother who actually died of the Spanish flu in 1918. An interesting parallel to our times, right? Right. And, and so that left Chuck as the little man in the house, you know, and he grew up with that, you know, that surrogate husband type of uh, omnipotence. I think his mother eventually remarried, but Chuck more or less rejected the stepfathers that came. And Chuck began drinking at about age 12. He was a, a relatively ambitious and aggressive person, and so he, he rose in the uh, corporate world pretty well. He was an executive with Gulf Oil, but he got fired because of his alcoholism. He lost two marriages that ended in divorce because of his alcoholism. His third wife, a woman that he actually met in Synanon, who was an African-American woman who was a heroin addict and had been a prostitute, yeah, he, he was very 
defiant and antagonistic and omnipotent as shaped by his family of origin. Then he contracted uh, meningitis when he was 20, and that left him, remember he had that drooping eyelid? Yeah, he, I remember. He also had kind of a lazy mouth. He joined AA in his uh, late 20s. AA began in 1935 in Ohio. He was a member of AA for quite a while in good standing. But then in the uh, 50s, he was living in Venice area, Santa Monica area. UCLA was, was starting to participate in LSD research, just the way it was being done at Harvard University under Timothy Leary. There were places in Canada and in the United States that were looking at uh, LSD as this miracle therapy for alcoholics, drug addicts, terminal cancer people, people with severe anxiety. And so he participated in that research. That is the beginning of, of Synanon, because on one of his acid trips, Chuck visualized a utopian society based on communal honesty and integrity. So he, he was having these LSD experiences. He was reading the literature from Ralph Waldo Emerson, from Thoreau, from William James, the, the father of modern psychology and visualizing of this kind of utopian environment. And so Synanon actually began as a group in his living room. And these were alcoholics. In 1958, that was when alcoholics started living in his house because they enjoyed this free conversation that was going on that later became the game. And we'll talk about that later because that is really the glue that held Synanon together. Yeah, and the game was, was fascinating, and it's helped me in some ways to this very day. But Synanon's original name was Tender Loving Care, or TLC. That was the sign that he had above his door in Venice Beach. And yes, alcoholics were coming over for the free food. He had gotten food trucks and restaurants to donate sandwiches and other meals. And they were, you know, taking part in this ongoing conversation where they felt completely uninhibited, where they could say whatever they wanted to. Right. He would uh, accurately term that as catharsis. So in 1958, Synanon began as TLC. Then quickly, some of the uh, drug addicts in the area, heroin addicts, were finding out about it. And they were coming in. They were wanting to experience this uninhibited conversation. And they wanted to get clean and sober. And it was actually working to help people get off of drugs and admit their character defects, because that was also a principle of AA, is admit your own character defects. You know? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How did it differentiate from AA? AA had actually uh, developed the 12-step program. And the, you know, the first step is admitting that you have a problem with alcohol and that your life is unmanageable. And the second step is trusting that a power greater than you, not necessarily God, but a higher power of some sort can restore you to sanity. And then the, the following steps are preparation and action steps to clean your own house of your own character defects and your own um, misguided beliefs and perceptions about life. But how is it then that these alcoholics and drug addicts, instead of going to AA, were more attracted to uh, the TLC at Chuck's apartment? Chuck was a pretty charismatic, interesting guy. He was a good speaker. He had a great sense of humor. And he was extremely theatrical, extremely theatrical. So he, he was an attractive character in the beginning. And by the way, you can't say anything you want in an AA meeting. You have to go by a pretty rigid format in most AA meetings. But in the Synanon group, which hadn't really been called a game yet, you could say whatever you wanted to anybody. And yeah. so, you know, the lid was off the repression. I think that was the yeah, most attractive and, thing. And we'll talk about the game a little bit later because that, in fact, has been also referred to as attack therapy. It was yeah. anything goes kind of catharsis. There was a lot that happened. Like, for example, in, in 1959, one of the members walked into a meeting and he wanted to say something about 
symposium and seminar. And he ended up, because he was drunk, saying Synanon. <laughs> and, and that became the name. Everyone lo- fell in love with that name. So Synanon was already a community uh, living off of uh, Chuck's unemployment and surviving by donation. So then what happened? Because I know that he got in trouble with the justice system. He was put away in jail. Is that right? In 1966, he went to jail because uh, he was in violation of a city code. He was running a drug and alcohol rehab in a neighborhood where it wasn't properly zoned. So Uh he actually ended up doing, I think, six months in jail. And that gave him martyr status. I mean, that really sealed the deal. In terms of him being a cult leader, he was imbued with some kind of religious mm-hmm. presence at that And point. I know that when you and I lived there, and probably many years before and, and years after we left, the Justice Department, at least in California, gave lots of drug addicts the choice of either going to jail or going to Synanon. So Synanon was in direct connectivity with the justice system. And that's, that's a system that's in place even now. There's two things that happen for drug addicts and people who are using drugs and, and abusing alcohol and that sort of thing. And one is prison time and the other is known as diversion. Yes, yeah, Synanon was the very first legal diversion program where the judge would actually give people a choice. Now that choice is different kinds of drug and alcohol programs and also Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. They're specifically ordered to do that. Yeah. And the difference is, is that Synanon was total 24-7 operation, except for the fact that you weren't living in a prison. You were there. You could not leave the premises. It was not just like some kind of therapy session that you had to go to on a regular basis or even an AA. You were a resident there, and, and that was your permanent situation. By 1967, Chuck abandoned the idea that people could actually rehabilitate in Synanon and then leave. Uh Because, you know, the relapse rate for heroin addiction and alcoholism is way over 50%. It's alarming. It's more in the the 70th percentile. And with opioids, it's more into the 80 and 90th percentile of relapse. You know, that empowered Chuck to say that the reason people can't stay clean and sober in the greater society is that greater society is a toxic place to live, and they could only survive in Synanon. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to emphasize that Synanon had an incredible track record for keeping people off of drugs. If you were living in Synanon, what was it, something like 99% of the people living in Synanon did not relapse. They didn't go back on drugs, right? There were some uh, people using Incinanon here and there, and actually I was one of them. But people used once in a while, but invariably it would be discovered, you know, because Uh in in that kind of intimacy, how do you keep those secrets? You know, then you would be punished. Having your head shaved, having to wear a, a sign that was humiliating, like, you know, I'm a baby, please make me work so that you can save my life these humiliating kinds of signs that people would have to wear and also take on these horrible jobs. So the punishment for using was pretty severe. But it uh, kept people in Synanon. Somehow, it, they did. It, it was public humiliation. And one of the things about Synanon, it did not have any professional status people there. It was one drug addict helping another drug addict. And everybody was on an equal footing except for Chuck. That idea, which is still, by the way, in effect, the best rehab communities are based on, you know, peer group counseling, not professional counseling. And, uh, you know, there are professionals that are taking part in it, obviously, especially in the very beginning when there are more medical issues for persons coming in with detox issues. But the actual rehab is really going on among peers. So that concept really came out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I moved in in 1969, same as you. Yeah. (laughs) But I I, I think I left a year earlier than you, and we were in different facilities. And um, that whole shame approach 
of wearing a sign. They even shaved, at some point, they shaved women's heads, too. Well, they sure did. And uh, later on, well, even when I was there, Chuck would order everybody to shave their head from time to time just to show unity. You know, like when everyone had to quit smoking because Chuck had to quit smoking. (laughs) (laughs) The doctor told him he had to quit smoking, so he made the entire community. And uh, so, yeah, men and women were shaving their heads. But, yeah, that... It was kind of a tribal, tribal thing. And it also was a family kind of thing where, you know, it was like he was the patriarch and we were the family. And we all symbolized solidarity. Although when I lived in Sinanon, I heard that two women who were forced to shave their heads committed suicide and they stopped shaving women's heads and only men's. I didn't hear about that, but that doesn't surprise me. If you just tuned in, you're listening to a conversation between myself, your host, Ruth Newman, and my brother, Sam Newman, all about the rise and fall of a cult group known as Synanon, which was home to both him and me back in the late 60s to early 70s during very tumultuous times in California and throughout the country. So let's continue on with our conversation all about the life we led, my brother and I, in a cult known as Synanon. So tell me how you got introduced to Synanon and what what was going on in your life. A movie about Synanon came out, I think, around 1963 or 1964. It was actually starring Chuck Connors. And I actually saw that movie when it was first uh, released. And I guess I was about or 13 or 14 when I saw it. So at least I had a mental note of it in my mind. And I never really thought of it after that. And then, you know, you and I were growing up in the uh, 60s and then... You know, the Beatles happened, right? Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, I started growing my hair long. And and then I went away to private school. You went away to college. And I started using drugs, you know, and and identifying myself more or less as a counterculture hippie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was having a lot of fun. And so that was from 1966 through 1969. And, you know, how did I end up in Synanon? We had a war going on. We had Vietnam going on. People were getting drafted. And we came from a family that was always very anti-war, and particularly the Vietnam War. So in May of 1969, I was pretty beaten up. I I had been living, you know, kind of on the streets, uh, using psychedelics, smoking a lot of pot, drinking, getting into trouble. And I, I was getting worn out by that lifestyle. It was a lot of fun at first, but it was really starting to wear me out. And it was also confusing me. I was losing a positive sense of identity. And mom and dad presented Synanon as the best alternative for me. They, I don't know how they had found out about Synanon. My understanding was that you actually were the one that found out about it first. No, they no. did. They're oh, the okay. ones that introduced both you and me to Synanon at, at different times. And, I don't and know how they found out about it, but they did. It was becoming quite popular with a category of people that were referred to as squares. And yeah. mom and dad were both squares. Those were people who who just dropped in every so often and played the Synanon game and had a bit of a social life at Synanon and then left, mm-hmm. but were not residents. And that's what mom and dad were. There was also the, the draft that, that yeah. was also why they you got introduced to Synanon, because they were scared that you were going to get drafted. I was scared, too. You know, I was really aware of the draft. And so the combination of my weakened internal physical and, and psychological state by way of drugs and the draft, those were the two uh, forces that where I just became kind of passive, passive and dependent. And I was kind of ready to, to do anything. They drove me to Synanon and dropped me off. I had hair below my armpits. I loved my long hair. And I went from that long, wavy hair to having a bald head in one day. I mean, they they shaved my head the day I came in. Yeah. 
There were some aspects of Synanon that were very much like the military. And I would say that the first six months, I didn't want to leave because because of my bald head. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's what they were thinking. The the way that a cult acts and the way that, you know, Synanon acted was to completely strip you of the things that that you assign as your identity, you know, whether it's appearance or, you know, the way that you dress or jewelry that you're wearing, the hair that you're wearing, any, anything that gives you your own sense of identity, they want to strip that away. And they did a very good job of that. Yeah, they took everything I owned when I moved in. Did they, um, did they take everything you owned? Maybe you just went in with the clothes on your back. I went in with the clothes on my back. I don't think I even packed anything. And I believe that mom and dad made a donation of $1,000. When residents came in, I wasn't actually a minor. I was 18. But they would ask parents or family for donations. And one of the things that I thought was very effective, actually, in keeping people off of drugs is that the minute you moved in, you couldn't have any contact with anybody that you knew before Synanon. You couldn't have contact with any family member or any friends from the outside. That's probably why they transferred you over to Oakland. Yeah, so they you transferred would... me right away. Yeah. Yeah, to Oakland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was in Santa Monica facility, the Del Mar Club, I, I used to look out the window right there on the beach what they called the speedway was right on the beach there and all the colorful hippies and freaks and musclemen and gypsies that were hanging out and i would just stare and think oh god what am i doing in here so yeah they they moved me right away to uh, oakland <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and when i think about my life in synanon Never once did I leave the facility, even though our facility was sitting right on the Santa Monica beach. It was right right on the beach. And yet, I never left. I was such a good rule follower. (laughs) Not me. I had a different way of moving in. Yeah. Um, I was living in Berkeley, and I was living in a house full of young women. Yeah. And it was, you know, the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a lot going on. And there was tear gas at the university from the police and um, lots of pandemonium. Mm-hmm. And I was very disoriented and um, very confused. And one day I decided I had to change my life. I had to do something <laughs> yeah. really, really drastic. Something drastic. What, yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what I did is I hitchhiked out to Walnut. I think it was Walnut Creek. And I had nothing. I just hitchhiked with clothes on my back. And this guy dropped me off in the middle of a woodsy, woodsy place. And then it started to rain. And I had no rain gear, nothing to sleep with. And I was out in the rain all night long. I froze. The next day, I remember I couldn't move at all. I couldn't move any part of my body. And so Mm -hmm. skipping forward, I came down with mononucleosis because I was out all night in the rain and I almost probably almost died. And I came down with mononucleosis. So my parents brought me back to Los Angeles and I spent, I don't know, six or eight months just trying to recuperate from that because I had a really bad case of mono. And along with that, I became very depressed, very depressed. And so, and so you were perfect. You were perfect fodder. Was, exactly. <laughs> and by the way, what happened to me the night before, the weekend before I moved in, me and a, and a group of my friends uh, who, who were living in Hermosa Beach, we were, you know, kind of going back and forth between homeless and couch surfing. And we had taken some drugs that we thought it was... Um, mescaline. We thought it was a psychedelic drug, but it ended up being PCP. PCP is like a powerful elephant tranquilizer. And so we were just really zoned out for like the whole weekend. We could hardly function. And so I was desperate. When I came out of that PCP haze, I was desperate for help. I really was. And it sounds like you were desperate for help. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And uh, my parents, um, to get me off the couch, because that's where I just stayed day after day, month after month, 
they took me one day to Synanon. And as a matter of fact, I did not go into the facility. I was too depressed and too self-conscious. And so I went right into the women's bathroom. I believe it was called the hut, if I'm not mistaken. I sat in the women's bathroom all day long watching women come in and out. But there was a nice little lounge in the bathroom, so women would sit down and talk with each other and all. So it was kind of nice. Well, so after that experience, I decided that I was going to go there every day because it was getting me out of my depression. In the beginning, I hung out in the bathroom every day, and it took me two hours to get to Synanon because I had to take a bus. And if you know anything about Los Angeles, it's not cut out for buses. And I remember it took me two hours and lots of transfers, yes. Yeah. And then I would just go in the bathroom all day long, and then I'd come home. And it was helping me. It was helping me. And as I started to feel more alive again, and um, I ventured out into the social part of the facility, they would have a weekly hoopla. And and I think if I'm not mistaken, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, the hoopla was the first line dance I don't think there were line dances, were there, before the I don't know, even that, like the Tennessee two-step or the Texas two-step, they, they yeah, had all those line dances. Western line dancing. Maybe the hoopla predated that, I wouldn't know. I think it did. It was like 1969, yeah. and uh, it was wonderful. It was so ecstatic for me because it was a group dance. It was where everybody learned, the, you know, just like a line dance, you, you learn the same. You go in the same direction. And by the yeah. way... I was in Beijing in 2019, and there were there were these places where the uh, Chinese would just get together, and, and someone would have like a boombox radio, and they would do the hoopla. Really? They, they were they were essentially dancing, you know, the steps of what I what I remember as the hoopla. You know, going huh. forward together, going back, going to one side, then going to the mm-hmm. other side. And always clapping in between the steps. Yeah, and and some fancy footwork. And I remember, yeah, I loved it. Something to say about cults. Cults feed on people that came out of dysfunctional families. And and one of the uh, ways in which you could label a family as dysfunctional is that it's not set up to properly launch the children from, you know, childhood, adolescence, and then into adulthood launch them into society it was like our family was like a broken launch pad Uh you know you went off to college but you had to come back i went out on the street but i couldn't function well even josh our little brother got out of there prematurely and kind of had to grow up on his own in some ways so Mm -hmm. so the Mm -hmm. cult kind of uh you know remediates this broken failed launch and so instead of launching into society, they just dumped us off in Synanon. <laughs> yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. But, we, you know, we weren't alone. Thousands of people were doing the same thing we were doing at that time. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the environment itself, because it was very, very social. It was very mm. friendly. There was food everywhere. You could walk just a few feet and you'd be in front of Girardelli's Chocolate. Peanut butter and jelly, cheese plates all over, cookies. It was just a very glittering. And there was this thing called the dope fiend mystique. That was all of these former drug addicts who were kind of walking around like gurus, you know. Yeah. Who, <laughs> yeah. And, and it was very appealing. It was appealing to a lot of people, including me and you. Drugs like heroin and even alcohol keep a person in a permanent narcissistic state. You know, that role that you play is kind of this mystique, is an extension of that narcissism. Mm -hmm. However, I must say that nobody that I knew in Synanon ever used drugs. Now, you said that once in a while. But you're right. Very few did. I would say less than 1%. And when 1% or less used, it was was dealt with very harshly. It was not tolerated. Not tolerated. Right. Right. However, the thing of it is, is that people somehow stayed in Synanon. I mean, anytime they wanted to, they could have walked out that door 
if they felt the pressure was too much for them. And, they could have walked. It was called splitting. Yeah. Right. And you were like really uh, influenced not to. You yeah. know, there was a lot of indoctrination not to split, that if you did, you would relapse, you would, you know, you would be destroyed by this horrible, toxic world. Yeah, I mean, you know, the principles of Synanon in the beginning, I would call Synanon a three-phase social movement. One was the beginning of a rehab, you know, that was based on Alcoholics Anonymous. And people living by the way of honesty, you know, and, and being able to be cathartic in their expressions. And also what Chuck described as uh, the necessity of having proprietary interest in their uh -huh. environment. Because in those days, addicts used to go to hospitals and they were treated by staff members, but they had no real position in that community. Their right. role was as a patient. But your role in Synanon was not as a patient. Your role right. was as a proprietary member of that society. And everybody had their own little job and their responsibility. Right. And so right. it functioned like a commune. And communal living and honesty turned out to be the kinds of therapy that people needed to stay clean and sober. Let's maybe talk a little bit about the game, because you were mm -hmm. talking about catharsis and honesty and all of that. Yeah, However, yeah. that yeah. was only mm -hmm. tolerated and encouraged in the Synanon game. But out on the floor, it was all about teeth and fuzz. You remember teeth and fuzz? You had to show a positive persona. You had to be wearing a smile. And if your attitude was off in any way, if you were melancholy or if you were agitated or anything like that, a member would come by and give you a, what they would call a verbal pull-up. They actually very hyperbolic about it. I'm saving your life by telling you to smile, by telling you that you've got a bad attitude. And there was something else called the stew. Game the stew to reach the trip. I want to amplify what you already brought up. And that is, is that, yes, in the games, you could say to anybody anything you wanted and there are no repercussions. You right. could not be fired from a job. You could not be punished. You could not be brought up on any kind of uh, indictment as long as it was all contained in the game. Outside of the game, there was a strict hierarchy and, yes. You know, there was a chain of command that, right. you know, Chuck was at the very top of it. I was somewhere near the bottom. You were at I was, the bottom. I was at the bottom, <laughs> and I never left the bottom the whole but two years outside I was there. Of the game, you had to uh, comply yeah. with that hierarchy and do whatever someone told you to do. And there was no degree of conflict or controversy that was allowed outside of the game. Right. As a matter of fact, the two expressions that I remember were teeth and fuzz and mm -hmm. act as if. By the way, act as if turns out to be a very important principle in behavioral science. I mean, even now working with uh, addicts and alcoholics and people with major personality difficulties, the way to institute change is to talk about act as if because people wait around to feel inspired, inspired to act better, inspired to do better. And they'll wait around your whole life. You won't feel it until you act it. So mm -hmm. fe feelings follow actions. Actions mm -hmm. follow, follow insight and decision. And, mm -hmm. and that's the, the recipe to recovery yeah. in, in, in almost everything. But Synanon took it to an extreme. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because in Synanon, as long as you were on the floor and not in a game or a stew or, or a trip... <laughs> You had to act a certain way, and you had to be always happy, always uh, radiating good times and good cheer. As I said earlier, the Synanon game was the glue that held yeah. everything together. And actually, in my opinion, it was how people rose in the ranks if they played the game well. If you played the Synanon game, which I never was able to do, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. then you would rise in the ranks. So describe a little bit what exactly was the Synanon game. And everybody belonged to a tribe. Do you remember the, the name of your tribe? In the Oakland facility, there I think were, I want to say 12 tribes, but maybe I'm thinking of, <laughs> I'm thinking of the, <laughs> the Jews, Jews there, I think. <laughs> what was the name of my tribe? Oh, based on Robert Heinlein's uh, science fiction, Stranger uh -huh. in a Strange Land. It was Rock. Rock. 
Interesting. And the name yeah. of my tribe was Sinyasa. The game always took place in a room with the door closed and these director chairs always set up in a circle. The circle is actually symbolic of inclusivity and equality because, you know, that, that was the spiritual center of Synanon was that essentially we're equal and character is the only rank. Remember Chuck used to say that all the yeah. time? That was based on uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays on self-reliance where he talks about a person's character. But uh, you're right in your observation that people that got good at playing the game, so people are sitting around in a circle, and it's an uninhibited, free conversation. It usually starts out with somebody indicting someone else. The term was actually indictment. So I have a beef to pick with you over there, Joan. And then I would get into, I saw you do this, or I heard you did that. And then Joan would invariably become defensive, and the rest of the community would join the attack. Yeah, it was like a mob action. And it would go around from one person to the next. Now, occasionally, but not often, occasionally somebody would say, I would like to use the game. You know, I would like to put the game on myself. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if you remember that, but occasionally, yeah, I remember that. That's a standard in, in any kind of group psychotherapy is that members go around and utilize, say, I want to do some work, and the rest of the group supports mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. that would happen in Synodon too, in the Synodon game. But you know what? It's it was not a safe place. No, it know? wasn't for me at least. It was a very <laughs> scary, very scary place because it's very scary. People could accuse you of anything. They didn't have to tell the truth. As a matter of fact, people were encouraged to exaggerate, to use theatrics, to lie. Ridicule was encouraged. Yes, yes. anything. And, you know, Chuck mm-hmm. Dieterich referred to the Synanon game as an emotional toilet. You know, just like we had to, you know, get rid of all the toxins from our food by going to the bathroom We had to get rid of all the toxins of our psychology and the day-to-day just uh, wearing down of our egos. We had to get rid of all of that through an emotional toilet. And that's what he considered the Synanon game. And so he encouraged people to cathart and to scream and yell and accuse each other and indict each other. And just as as you were explaining it, You know, we have a physical body that metabolizes and eliminates. And we also have an emotional and psychological body that metabolizes and eliminates. And so in order to be in good psychological health, you have to like spew out these toxins. Then they had all kinds of pool shot terms, right? From a pool table. Oh yeah, carom shot pool you're shooting at an angle and you hit you hit a ball and it goes off in a different angle and it right and so chuck was also raised catholic but he also utilized the principle in the catholic church of confession so that was even more pronounced in the synodon trip when we go to talk about the trip but in the game yeah you're supposed to get honest with yourself you're supposed to be reflective And, you know, all these attacks are supposed to be weakening your defense mechanisms. Do you remember that? That was also in the vocabulary, getting through the defenses. It was like the group was just battering you and battering you. It was a group attack on an individual. And they would call each person who who the game was on as being in the hot seat. In the hot hot seat. That's right. Yeah, and so when I said that we were all in tribes, I don't know yeah. how many, maybe, maybe 25, 30 people in a tribe. And then the leader of the tribe, and I remember my leader was Joe Galata. <laughs> Joe Galata was the guy that actually interviewed me when uh, I came in that horrible, really? <laughs> that horrible day that I dragged myself in the door and uh, they, you know, they gave me a verbal haircut. Joe Galata was the guy that did it. Explain what a haircut is. Well, a haircut is when, you know, you are perceived as being out of line, non-compliant or arrogant or some combination thereof. And somebody or a panel of people pull you over and, and humiliate you and, you know, use ridicule 
and and use all the techniques that are used in a game to break somebody down uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, to make you feel humiliated and therefore humble. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Joe Galato was my tribe leader. And um, so I remember going into Synodon games three times a week and he would gather the tribe and then he, he would tell people what game room they were going to be in because each game had, I think, between six and ten people. Although yeah, there was... were other specialized games, like yeah. like in, if you worked in a particular department, like I worked in food service or the school, they would have their own specialized games. But the tribe games were like three or four a week, and you're right. We would all gather at a certain time, and then we would be deployed. And- and we would recite the Synanon philosophy. Remember yeah. that? The Synanon philosophy is based on the belief there comes a time in every man's life when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must accept himself for better or worse as is his portion. And it goes on and on and on and on. That the wide universe is full of good. No kernel <laughs> of nourishing corn can come to him but through the toil bestowed on that plot of ground which was given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature, and none but he knows what it is that he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Bravely let him speak the utmost syllable of his conviction. God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. That was it right there. And by the way, that is directly lifted from Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on (laughs) self-reliance. He was plagiarizing him. But that was the synod, and we had to recite that every time we got together for a a tribal meeting and a synod on game. Yeah, we recited it just the way we recited the Pledge of Allegiance as children. Right. So Mm. let's talk about the stew, because the stew was another form of the synod on game. However, it went on all the time. it It was known as the perpetual stew. Yes, 24-7. It was always going on, and it was a stew because different people would come into the stew. People would leave the stew. There were always some people coming in, some people leaving. How it differed from the game is that it was going on perpetually, but it also Mm -hmm. differed from the game in that it was a much larger assembly. Exactly. Yes, it was in a big, huge room. And if you were put into the stew, you stayed Mm -hmm. there for 24 hours. I think the game was something like two hours, wasn't it? It was always two hours. Every game was two hours. The stew was, um, I think, a minimum of 24. I think some people had to go in for 48 hours. I believe that I was one of them. And in my 40th hour in the stew, and the game was on me, in other words, uh-huh. the, group, the group was attacking me, and there were some heavy hitters in this stew. I mean, by heavy hitters, people who had been in Synodon for 10 years and had a lot of prowess in the game and a lot of status in the community. And they were trying to humiliate me sexually, you know, in every way that they possibly could. And uh-huh. I remember getting to a point where I felt very psychotic. I was actually hallucinating. I remember seeing the stew as an actual stew, like boiling, <laughs> boiling over. Well, the fact that and, you had to be yeah. in it for 24 hours w- yeah. was also a factor. Dissipation, you know, the, the staying mm-hmm. up hour after hour after hour without sleep, which, by the way, we do now all the time anyway. <laughs> we, I don't know, maybe that's how our sleep problems really began. But it does play on your sensorium. You know, you, you can begin to have visual distortions and hallucinations. You can begin to hear things. You can begin to have some crazy ideas about things. I guess rather similar to, you know, the effect of psychedelic kinds of drugs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that they used the stew was when if people acted out at any time, yeah. they could immediately be sent into the stew. It- you could be thrown into it. Yes, exactly. You could literally be thrown in the stew. You could be ordered to go into the stew. And I think that may have happened to me. And Mm -hmm. uh, I got to the point in one of those stews, and I had already Uh been in Synanon for about two years. But I got so attacked, my mental state became so hallucinatory that I had to run out. And I ran out of the building, and I ran around the block, and this is in downtown Oakland. And then I figured, okay, I have no place to go, so I had to come back in. 
<laughs> and then um, actually, they saw that they had broke me in that situation, and and uh, I now and then I remember them trying to put me back together, and it was very nice actually. So there was this inclination, it seemed, which I guess is human nature, that when somebody has been totally broken, and when they're vulnerable, and when they're showing you, here's my juggler, go ahead and bite, they would back off, and they would right. they would try, try to be supportive. Well, you know, that brings, that would segue very nicely into the trip because that was, in my opinion, the mechanism of the trip. The whole idea of the Synanon trip was to break you down, totally break you down, which is what happened to me, and then build you back up afterwards. Now, let's go a little bit into the Synanon trip, which I think I only went into once and you only went into once. Yeah, only once. I think that generally people only get to go into it once. Well, it looks like we've run out of time. So I'm going to leave you guys dangling, perhaps even leave you somewhat curious to find out about the Synanon trip, a 66-hour incredible ordeal that all residents of Synanon and some squares, and those were the people like our parents, not living in Synanon, but just visiting. All of these people went through the Synanon trip, and I dare say came out profoundly changed. So I hope you'll join me next week as we continue with Chapter 2 of Life in a Cult Group called Synanon. But for now, I want you to reflect on the critical need, especially now, to maintain whatever tiny space we have left on our so-called public airwaves for promoting the public interest. Our media, for the most part, have been sold out to the highest bidders, those with commercial and other special interest agendas. It is up to us more than ever before to do what we can to keep media in the public interest alive. And that's why I urge you to go right now to forwardradio.org and click on the donation tab and contribute. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening to this special edition of Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM. Bye for now.